Hi, I'm Mirabel Jesuthasen, and you're listening to the New Narratives in History and Philosophy podcast. The New Narratives project aims to reinvigorate the philosophical canon by looking at scholars who have been overlooked in the typical college classroom. And today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Colin Chamberlain, Assistant Professor of Philosophy at, at Temple University. Colin's interest is in modern philosophy, particularly um, the significance of the body in a Cartesian context. Hi, Colin. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, of course. Do you want to tell us about how you came to include women in your syllabus, particularly this year? Sure. I'd love to. So this year, particularly this fall, was the first time that I really revamped my syllabus and included quite a few early modern women philosophers. Uh, before this year, I had taught a relatively standard course with like a few canonical um, old white men philosophers on my syllabus and sprinkled a few women here and there in the nooks and crannies of my courses. One problem with that kind of strategy, when you're running behind schedule, it's like late in the semester, you're running out of time, those are the things that got caught. So I kind of became convinced that if I really wanted to incorporate more women figures in my courses, I had to do something new. Like I had to structure the story of the course differently. But I was kind of scared about doing this for two main reasons. First reason is maybe a little bit more philosophical. Um, like the tradition is heavy. Uh, I felt like I had this obligation to teach like the great philosophers of the early modern period, so people like Descartes, Locke, um, Hume, Kant, and somehow that I would be doing a disservice to my students if I didn't teach those figures. Um, second worry that I had was a little bit more pragmatic. There are institutional pressures to be conservative, so I'm a junior professor on the tenure track there's a lot of pressure to publish. The message I'm getting from my institution is that I need to focus on my research. So I was kind of scared about trying to do something new, which would take more time and preparation than just doing what I'd always done. So I was a little bit nervous, but I went for it. What did you find was different in that class? Um, many things changed as a result. Um, I picked a new topic than I had used previously to structure my class. So this past fall, the class was all about the nature of the physical world as it was being reconceived in the 17th and 18th century. Um, so this was a really exciting time in early modern philosophy. People are starting to move away from a medieval worldview where nature is infused with like purpose and value towards thinking of the world as a giant machine um, where almost everything is explicable in terms of matter and motion. And what we looked at in this course were just different conceptions of the physical world in this period focused on three main topics. Um, nature of material things like a book or a rock. We asked whether the nature of material things is such that they can be colored and then Third, we asked about the nature of the space in which these material things exist and move. And that allowed us to do a different set of figures than, um, than you might normally cover. So we read uh, Rene Descartes, who people may have heard of. I think they were 4 a.m., uh, famously argues for mind-body dualism. We read a little bit of Princess Elizabeth, who's one of Descartes' most important critics. 
Um, she worries that if mind and body are as different as Descartes says they are, that they can't possibly interact. Then we read Margaret Cavendish, Duchess of Newcastle, who I think we're going to talk more about. Um, so she interestingly argues for the view that everything is material in a way, but a very interesting kind of matter. Then we read some Newton and Leibniz, and finally some Emily du Chatelet, who, who did a lot of really interesting work on um, physics and tried to reconcile Leibnizian metaphysics with Newtonian physics in the 18th century. So that was the course, kind of. Also here with us today, we have um, three people who are witness to Colin's work. So we have Lee Thompson, Brooke Sharp, and Bonnie McClellan. Brooke is a graduate student who works with Colin, and Lee and Bonnie have taken a class um, with Colin. So would you guys just want to introduce yourselves and discuss what it was like being in the class, going through that um, syllabus, Lee and Bonnie? I am Lee Thompson. Um, I am a psychology major at Temple University. And until I had taken a class with Colin, I had never really read any philosophy. Um, I, I hadn't worked with it at all. And as a result, I don't think I had any thoughts about the presence of women philosophers in our curriculum and in our syllabus. It seemed natural to me, and I didn't expect there to be a lack of women philosophers. So it, it didn't really stand out to me um, in that sense. I just like really enjoyed the class and I found a love for like reconstructing arguments and dealing with the tiny details that really make or break somebody's case. Um. I am Bonnie. I am a sophomore English philosophy and German major um, and I took Colin's class my freshman year, and before that, I was very scared of philosophy, but I got more excited about the questions and, like Lee said, the arguments, and um, yeah, I, hadn't, I also hadn't had any female philosophers in syllabi. So I sort of want to pick up on something you just said, Bonnie, because I remember very vividly what you were like in your freshman year, and you were so shy, like you never said anything. And now I look at you now, and you're like confident, you have questions, and you are unafraid to ask your questions. And so I kind of want to hear about how that happened and how whether reading women philosophers was part of that process? Um, so when I came to Temple, I was going to be a theater major. And, and then I quickly decided that that was not what I wanted to do. And I started thinking about like philosophy and I was like, I want to take one of these classes. So I took intro to philosophy and instead of talking in class, I would write my questions down and email them to my professor. And then we would have these long emails back and forth. And so that was the only like experience I had had when I first took a class with Colin and so I did the same thing like the first time I had a bunch of questions I emailed him a long email and he said oh let's uh let's come talk about it in just hours. just to be clear these emails were pages and <laughs> pages so long. long like like Bonnie wrote a novel worth of emails by the end of the class but oh, sorry keep going <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah they're they're really long lots of questions so I went into office hours and I uh, had a Fitbit at the time, and it takes my heart rate. <laughs> and um, I looked at it 
afterwards, and it was in like the 100s for a full like 20 minutes. <laughs> I had to talk out my questions, and I also said in my email, I am too afraid to ask these questions in class. So then Colin was like, okay, so now you're going to have to ask questions in class. So I started asking questions in class, and then I found out that that was not as scary as I thought it was. And the questions that we were talking about, I was too excited to not ask my questions. So with Cavendish and especially with Du Chatelet, whenever she's like, what is fire? I'm like, I actually don't understand it either. So then I have these lists of like tons of questions, like how do planes go so fast? It made me so excited and I feel like a different student. No, that's great. <laughs> <laughs> Was this the first time both of you had taken a philosophy class? That's kind of how it sounded like. It was I don't know if that was the first case. time. Yeah. yeah, it was my first time taking a philosophy class. I had taken intro to philosophy, but uh, otherwise, yes. And so I, I wonder whether Lee and Bonnie might not be totally representative samples. Two weeks ago, I think we were talking to another Temple undergraduate who is the president of the philosophy club. And she was saying that she had never read a woman philosopher in any of her classes. And this is someone who's like super involved, taking lots of philosophy classes. She must be a, a rising senior or something like that. So has been around for a while and has never read a woman philosopher. And that's a problem. Like that's a big problem. Maybe this is a chance to like say something about how I kind of got over the hump of being like nervous about teaching this way and including more wound figures, I started to think about like, what do I want my courses to accomplish as a whole? More than anything else, I want to bring people in and make them feel like they can do philosophy and be philosophers. And if my syllabus is turning away like half of my students, like that is a failure as a course if it is alienating a huge percentage of your students. When you're like constructing a course, the first question is like, how can I construct this so that it is appealing and inviting to all of my students? Um, you end up with a very different syllabus than if you think like, how am I going to teach like the canonical figures that are in some sense like quote unquote indispensable? Um, and once I started reconceiving of the course that way, it was just really freeing. Um, yeah, so let's move on to Brooke. Um, you are obviously, you're a graduate student. Um, can you tell us a bit more about what you're working on and how you started working with Colin and what's, what's that been like for you? Oh, sure. So I'm a second year uh, graduate student at Temple and um, my very first semester I took a class with Colin on perception and uh, Cavendish was one of the philosophers on our course list and I was just hooked immediately So I thought it was very interesting that we finally got to read a woman who was a historical philosopher. And um, since then, I've just been bugging Colin <laughs> about Cavendish and other female philosophers, because that wasn't the only female philosopher we read. We also read um, Lady Mary Shepard and Catherine Trotter Cockburn, that we read quite a few. It was interesting to, uh, to, to have like a different perspective of the same time period. And was this the first time you had read a female philosopher in class or not? It was, which is 
I got through my whole undergrad career without reading a female philosopher. So, yeah, that was it was different. Wow. And now are you working on any specific female philosophers or? Uh, yeah, I'm working on two at the moment. I'm working on Margaret Cavendish, and I'm also working on one of Cavendish's contemporaries, Anne Conway. Um, I set up a reading group at Temple where we just go through the one work that she published. There was one more question that I was hoping to ask Lee, if that's all right. Um, so the final assignment in my course, the undergrads took on the personas of some of the historical figures we read. And Lee wrote as Cavendish for a few weeks in correspondence with Leibniz. And so one thing that I kind of wanted to hear is, like, what was that like for you? Like, what was it like to write as Margaret Cavendish? Sure. Um, part of it was enjoyable. I just enjoyed the nature of the assignment. Getting to fake converse with another old philosopher as I'm pretending to be an old philosopher, was it was just a fun assignment. But in terms of actually trying to take on Margaret Cavendish, Cavendish's tone, I was a little frustrated. I found myself having to try and imitate her like subtle sarcasm in a way and using that sarcasm to try and make the points I was trying to make was difficult. I had always just been used to in arguments saying exactly how I felt and endorsing my ideas as my own, but oftentimes Margaret Cavendish would right under the guise of, I apologize if I don't know enough about this subject to converse with you correctly, but here are some of my initial unlearned thoughts. So trying to qualify all of my opinions as somehow automatically being less than my counterpart's opinions, were it, it was frustrating. All right. Um... So we're going to do, well, two readings from Cavendish's observations upon experimental philosophy. So Cavendish is kind of unusual in the early modern period in that she's a materialist. So she thinks that all of nature is material or physical. When you hear that, she might sound a lot like contemporary people who think that all that really exists is physical stuff of various kinds. But she adds her own distinctive twist. She thinks that everything is material, but also intelligent and alive, that everything is physical, but also sensitive and rational. Um, so I'm a material being that knows things, perceives things, feels things, but so is the book. So is the fish in the stream. So is the stream. Um, she thinks that different kinds of things, rocks, fish, water, human beings, know different kinds of things, but we all know something. Uh, and so the passage that Bonnie is going to read, Cavendish is describing her view that all of matter has some of these different aspects. For as in the extraction of a house, there is first required an architect or surveyor who orders and designs the building and puts the laborers to work. Next, the laborers or workmen themselves, and lastly, the materials of which the house is built. So the rational part, said they, in the framing of natural effects, is, as it were, the surveyor or architect, the sensitive, the laboring or working part, and the inanimate, the materials. And all these degrees are necessarily required in every composed action of nature. Okay, so there's, there's a lot going on in that passage. Um, so Cavendish thinks that there are three degrees or kinds of matter. Rational matter sensitive matter, and inanimate matter. 
and that every like, particular material thing is a mixture of those three kinds. She's, she's trying to help us understand the difference between these three degrees of matter. So can we unpack this metaphor at all, the construction of the house? The rational matter is what I guess we would call the thinking matter of a substance. It's the intelligent matter. It kind of tells the other parts of matter what it's supposed to do. The perceptive or sensitive matter is the matter that uh, interacts with everything around it. So it kind of passively takes on input that it gets from everything. And then the inanimate matter doesn't have any kind of rational or sensitive capacity. So she likens that to like the materials because it just gets told what to do by the other parts of matter. But all of this happens through an internal self-motion of the parts of matter. So the rational and sensitive can move the inanimate matter however they want. Bonnie, you look like you have a thought. Oh, I was I was actually just going to ask, does the, the hand example with Anne Conway that we used in reading group, does that make sense in this? Oh, the hand example is that um, there's a degree of matter. So there's a degree of the amount of a spirit, I guess, that is in matter that doesn't exactly translate to Cavendish, but because um, her commixture is of like three types of matter. So it, it doesn't translate exactly, but it's kind of the same idea in that there's like a different mixture of the different parts mm. of matter. It's like maybe if you could mix your hand with something else. Yeah. That might be a way. If I could put my hand yeah. in this in. Yeah. I like the architect example because it gives you a vivid sense of what these three kinds of matter are supposed to be doing, right? So you have the rational matter that is like the architect. It draws the plans of the building. Um, it sets the agenda. But then you need this other kind of matter, sensitive matter, to actually execute that plan. That's the builders, right? So sensitive matter, um, that's the kind of matter that actually builds stuff. What does it build with? Well, inanimate matter, the raw materials. And she thinks that you need all these three kinds of matter to explain every composed action of nature. So you need these three ingredients to explain anything that happens. So I don't know, like, a rock falls. To explain that, you need those three kinds of matter. Um, a tree grows, you need those three kinds of matter. But maybe I'm getting ahead of ourselves a little bit here. Okay. Can I ask a yeah, question? please. Just me not understanding. Sure. Um, I keep thinking of sensitive matter as like a mix between rational and um, inanimate. I know that's not right. Yeah. And I've been over this before, but I still think of it like that. Is that wrong? I don't know if that's relevant to this. It's just my <laughs> question. Well, the rational and sensitive, they have like self-motion, whereas the inanimate, it doesn't have any kind of motion itself. So it depends on the um, rational and sensitive matter to be able to move. I like to think of the perceptive matter as being a little bit more passive, because it responds to, like, other matter. So it kind of has to wait until something occasions it to move before it can do anything. But, I mean, that's not exactly 100% correct because the rational tells the sensitive to do things, too. So it kind of just... It's sort of like a middle between the rational yeah. and the inanimate. I was wondering if that's that what Bonnie sense? was getting at. That, oh, like, okay. sensitive matter seems like it does play this kind of mediating role. And so you kind of want it to be a little okay. bit like both... So that it can play that kind of role? Is that... Now I understand your Conway question a little yeah, bit better. because it kind of feels okay. like 
the um the rational part is on one end and then the um the inanimate. Uh, inanimate yeah. part is on the other end, and then like in between is the sensitive. Okay. Because it's both kind of like, it's a little bit smart and it's a little bit, but then it's also just kind of like a little bit inanimate, a little bit. Hmm. Yeah, I think it's enough like the materials that it can like engage with them and move them around. Yeah. It's not like the like super flimsy rational matter. Yeah. Yeah, because rational matter is the most light, um, rarest part of matter. Was inanimate is the is the uh, like grossest, densest matter, and I guess you know perceptive matter, the sensitive matter is kind of in between there. So I, I wonder if it would make sense to move to our second little passage because I think we really want to get to that yeah. as well. Okay, so that's that's a view, right? Like Cavendish has told us everything is material, but a funny kind of matter, uh, a matter that involves a mixture of these three elements: rational, sensitive, and inanimate. And it might sound a little bit weird and wild at first. Like, what? My pen has a mind of its own? The dust bunnies under my bed have, like, mental lives and feelings? What? So one kind of question that we want to ask is, like, why did Cavendish think this was true? Uh, like, she has, she has views. She has lots of views. That's only one thing we're interested in. We're interested in the why question. Like, why did she think these things were true? Like, what were her arguments? What can she say to convince us that this is a reasonable way of thinking about the world? And I think she actually has, like, pretty compelling arguments for most parts of her system. We might not agree with them in every respect, but I think they're pretty good arguments often. So I think Bonnie is going to read for us a passage where you get a, a bit of an argument for the kind of materialism that Cavendish endorses. That every part of nature has not only sensitive, but also rational matter is evident, not only by the bare motion in every part of nature, which cannot be without sense, for wheresoever is motion, there's sense but also by the regular, harmonious, and well-ordered actions of nature, which clearly demonstrates that there must needs be reason as well as sense in every part and particle of nature. For there can be no order, method, or harmony, especially such as appears in the actions of nature without there to be reason to cause that order and harmony. And thus motion argues sense, and the well-ordered motion argues reason in nature and in every part and particle thereof, without which nature could not subsist, but would be as a dull, indigested, and unformed heap and chaos. Great. Uh, what's going on in this passage? What is the argument in this passage? So I think that it's supposed to be an argument to the best explanation. Um, so we open our eyes and we look at nature. We observe two things. Stuff is changing. Stuff is moving around all over the place. What are some examples of that? Uh, I don't know. It's, it's spring in Philadelphia. The trees are blooming. The leaves are coming out. So there, there's change or motion everywhere in nature. Here's another thing you might notice. Things are changing in an orderly, regular, harmonious way. When the trees flower, it's not like random things appear on their branches. The same flowers that appeared last year appear, that produce seeds that produce similar trees, maybe in a few years. So 
there's stuff changing all over the place, but it's changing in this harmonious, orderly way. And she thinks that these two features of nature require certain kinds of explanations. So first claim, which is a little bit shocking, but I have some views about why she might think it's true, that there couldn't be motion or change at all without sensation. Um, so without some kind of perception of what's happening. So like the tree could not flower if it didn't have some sense of what it was doing. Second move, she thinks that the harmony and order we observe in nature is really important. And that like there couldn't be that unless there was rationality diffused throughout nature. So I kind of think of this as something like the argument from intelligent design. Um, so some Christian thinkers like look at the world and think like, look at how well designed the world is. Well, there's got to be a God who created this world to explain the kind of order that we observe. It seems like Cavish is doing something a little bit similar. She's but she's drawing a different kind of inference. Like, look at how orderly and well-designed the world is. Gosh, it must be the case that nature is ordering itself. So maybe similar kind of premise, pretty different conclusion. I think that's interesting. And I was just thinking, not, it's not that like nature as a whole is intelligent, which she, well, she does think, think that too, yeah. but every single part of every single thing that we look yeah. at has intelligence and has a, the sensitive capacity. And the rational capacity. Yeah. <laughs> so can I ask, um, going from that, does she think that every part of every object has uh, sensitivity or that the object as a whole is one sensing every thing? Every single part. She she doesn't believe that there's um, like a smallest particle, that everything can just be right. divided infinitely. So every single, as far as you can go down, it has the three degrees of matter. The eraser on my pen has some kind of sensitive and rational capacity that's different from the point of my pen that has rational and sensitive capacity. Any further comments? Comparing this view to some of her contemporaries, I'm thinking obviously Descartes, but any, maybe in your syllabus, who were you, or whose arguments were you comparing this to? So Cavendish comes after Descartes um, and responds to him at great length. And I think, so Descartes, I don't know if yeah, our so listeners will know this. Maybe go through a little of what he says. Sure. Okay. Um, so Descartes divides the world into two basic categories. Category of physical or material things. Uh, examples include rocks, tables, chairs, animals, human bodies. And a category of thinking things. So like particular mental states, minds, for him, angels, and God. Um, in many ways, like, we still inhabit this conceptual scheme. Like, it's so natural for us to just divide reality up into physical stuff and mental stuff. Uh, so one of my favorite examples is, like, healthcare in this country. We have the National Institute of Health on the one hand, the National Institute of Mental Health on the other. And, like, these are different subject matters. Um, or neuroscience is one discipline, psychology is a different one. So this kind of conceptual scheme, um, like this way of dividing up the world is just like it is still with us. Like Descartes has got under our skin, we are all Cartesians. Um, another, of my another of my favorite examples is like think about 
yoga classes. It's like we go to yoga to put our minds and bodies back back together again to achieve some kind of wholeness. And like, how did that become a problem? Like, why did we start thinking that mind and body are such radically different things? Well, probably in a large part of De- because of Descartes. Like, there were dualists before him, but he more than anyone else, I think is responsible for the way that this division into thinking stuff and material stuff has just like worked its way into our culture and our conceptual schemes. Um, a number of these early modern women philosophers like tried to resist. Um, so if people have heard of one early modern woman philosopher, it's probably Princess Elizabeth of Bohemia, who was one of Descartes' Um, most insightful correspondence. And she raises some of the great objections to this that really stalk Descartes in his tracks. So she raises what gets called the interaction problem. So if mind and body are as different as you say they are, Descartes, how can they possibly interact? It seems like you can only move a body by means of contact, but if the mind is this immaterial, non-spatial thing, how could it make contact with the body? Cavendish, too, I think has some really trenchant objections to Descartes' dualism, and it's important for her to argue against it because she wants to say, that's the wrong way to think about things. Like, mind and body are not two different substances. They are different aspects of one and the same nature. So you can't, like, pull them apart in the way that Descartes wanted to. I'm wondering if, like, through your correspondent assignment, you guys got into this kind of debate and what that looked like, any of the questions you guys asked or... I got really into Descartes. (laughs) I, um, I wrote a paper as Descartes. Of her own free will with no prompting. It was like a spontaneous (laughs) exercise as Descartes' ghost. Yes. Uh, he, um, is now, because his mind and body are separate, so then his mind is now able to, uh, occupy computers, so I was able to talk to him, uh, it was delightful, <laughs> but, um, well, like, basically, I'm asking, so you were talking about how Descartes believes in this dualism, and Cavendish and other early women philosophers did not, and you guys had this assignment where you had to pretend to be two sides, so did you ever get into that argument? I'm just wondering. I'm, I'm not sure that there was a Cavendish-Descartes pair. There was okay. Cavendish-Leibniz. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah. Uh, and then I think I was with the Leibniz. Yeah. Also. Um, different Leibniz. So next time. Okay. Next yeah. edition. I mean, I'm just yeah. wondering. I mean, one thing that is kind of cool is so Descartes is like two like fundamentally different categories of things thinking stuff, physical stuff. And Cavendish, who, Margaret Cavendish, who we've been talking a lot about, criticizes that in various ways and thinks, nah, everything's material. It's sensitive and rational too, but it's basically just material. Uh, Another early modern woman philosopher who we've been talking about at Temple these days, and this is all because of Brooke, really, who started this reading group about early modern women philosophers. Um, um, They've been reading Anne Conway, who also objects to Descartes, but kind of goes in the other direction. She's like, this distinction between mind and body, that doesn't really make any, many sense. Everything is spirit. Everything is mental. By the way, also extended in a way, but really it's spirit. So one thing we've been talking about and trying to figure out is like, what is the difference between these two views? 
Like, what is the difference between saying everything is material, but also kind of mental on the one hand, and that's Cavendish, and saying, like, and Conway, everything is spiritual, everything is mental. But oh, by the way, also material in a way. It seems like they're just, like, bolding (laughs) different words, and I don't know. Brooke, do you want to talk to us a bit about Anne Conway? Oh, um, sure. So uh, we started focusing on Anne Conway. I heard that her philosophy perhaps influenced Leibniz, so I wanted to, to read and figure out what exactly she was talking about. We haven't gotten through her whole work yet, and we kind of started in the middle talking about how she views the mind and body or the spirit and matter. And then we just realized we had to just start at the beginning (laughs) and see if we could figure out exactly what she meant by this, which is where Bonnie's hand example comes from, because she tells us that there are things that are material and that there are things that are spirit, but there's not a difference in kind between what is material and what is spirit. So I think you said it best when it comes down to everything is spirit, but it has sort of like material characteristics. Um, Can I ask a bit about your reading group as well? How did that start? So in Colin's class last semester, um, I just was having a hard time understanding Leibniz and his concept of monads. <laughs> so I thought we could talk about that. But uh, actually, one of the other grad students, he said that it would be very interesting if we read Conway. And um, so I said, all right, let's just get a group together and see who wants to join and talk about a early modern female philosopher that almost no one has heard of before. <laughs> so and we, we got a lot of traction. We have, I think, six people that come consistently. And we get a few more when they can come. It's spreading. <laughs> yeah, it's spreading. The, the word is spreading on female <laughs> that's, philosophers. That's the hope, anyway. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Brooke prepared for us a more detailed outline of Cavendish's life and her works. Would you like to like talk more generally about the context she was writing in and all that? So Margaret Cavendish, she was born in 1623, so she was a contemporary of uh, Rene Descartes. And um, she never corresponded or spoke with him because she only spoke English, but she was exposed to him and other philosophers through the Cavendish Circle or the Newcastle Circle. She didn't actually have a formal education or what she tells us she didn't have a formal education, that she mostly um, learned from reading books. And she spoke with her middle brother who was affluent um, His name was John Lucas, and he was a founding member of the Royal Society. So she grew up in, I guess, like an intellectual climate. And she married the Duchess of Newcastle, William Cavendish, in 1645, who was very much encouraging of her philosophical career, which is very unusual at the time. But he himself, unfortunately, was not as intellectual, so he didn't. He wasn't able to help her with her arguments, but he did help her publish her works, and she wrote quite a few works. Um, she wrote poems on philosophical fiction to begin with, and then she had um, quite a few books on just her views about philosophy. Those include her philosophical letters in which she corresponds with unfortunately herself, (laughs) instead of any of her contemporaries, her observations upon experimental philosophy and then her grounds of natural philosophy where she talks through her her views on 
what the world is made of. She unfortunately never had a written philosophical correspondence with any of the philosophers that she argued against. These include Rene Descartes and Thomas Hobbes. And then in 1667, she was offered a very rare chance for women. She was invited to attend and participate in a meeting of the Royal Society. But unfortunately, um, this did nothing for her philosophical career. She was still not taken seriously by her contemporaries. We have to talk about her today since they wouldn't. (laughs) Here we are today, making up for lost time. I I had two, I don't know, I don't know if this is the right time, two questions for um, this group. So one thing I sort of want to hear from Bonnie and Lee is, do you find reading Margaret Cavendish more difficult than any of the other people we read because like I have this impression like oh gosh she's really hard like she's really hard to make sense of and I wonder whether you have that impression coming with like a little bit fresher to the text I don't necessarily find her harder to read in terms of vocabulary or even in trying to figure out what she's saying in a certain passage I think the only aspect of her writing that I've noticed is more difficult to understand might be the organization of it. Um, She'll start talking about a general concept, uh, go into one specific aspect of this concept, move to a new aspect, and then return to the first one in a later passage and kind of bounces between ideas in a sense. I think that might be the result of many of the other more canonical philosophers we've read having organized their writings in similar ways amongst each other. Yeah, I don't think it's much more difficult to digest. I think there's just maybe one extra reread required. I would say that she is a little bit more difficult. Um, I had a hard time also with the organization, and I felt like I had to sort of fall into an intuitive way of just like, She's telling not necessarily, like, really, really uh, arguments that are, like, very, very specific that you can, like, pick apart, but, like, also using a lot of images. So if I got, like, really stuck on one section, I had to just kind of accept it in a bigger, like, along with all of her other stuff, as opposed to, like, getting stuck on why this example makes sense. Um, So I guess that's an organization thing. Yeah, I did definitely have difficulty okay. with her, though. Um, Except, took me a while. Yeah. I guess, you know, one question that I think about sometimes is, I've been reading Descartes for a long time now, like for over a decade or something. And so, you know, I still struggle with him in some ways, but I find him easy to read. And then I turn to Cavendish, and I'm like, oh, gosh, I just kind of feel a little bit bewildered. But I wonder if that's just because she's less familiar and that, like in 10 years, maybe I'll read Cavendish and I'm like, yes, I understand why she's talking about this here now, but maybe that's a few years off for me still. Then I also wanted Bonnie to ask one more question of Brooke, maybe, just for fun. <laughs> Are you Margaret Cavendish? <laughs> as much as I would like to be, no, I'm not. <laughs> You're giving me a bewildered expression. (laughs) (laughs) I just happen to identify very much with Margaret Cavendish because she focuses most of her work on metaphysics, which is um, something that I found not many philosophers that I speak with um, focus their work on. So I feel connected to her in that sense. But also she didn't, she wasn't taken seriously by the people 
that she, her contemporaries, they didn't take her very seriously. Um, and I sort of found that until I started working on other female philosophers, people didn't really want to correspond with me <laughs> about my work either. So I feel connected to to her troubles. <laughs> As Colin said, we'll wait and see in the yeah. next few years <laughs> what the impact of this course has been. All right. Thank you guys so much for being here and talking about all this stuff. Um, yeah, this brings us to the end of New Narratives. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the New Narratives in the History of Philosophy podcast. The New Narratives Project and podcast are funded by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. In the spirit of the project, the music for the podcast is 17th century female composer Elizabeth Claude Jacquette de la Guerre Sonana No. 2 in D major, performed on the violin by Bezervid Amonish. For more information about the project and for future episodes, please visit our website newnarrativesinphilosophy.net and follow us on Facebook. We look forward to discussing all these new figures and ideas with you.